Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you the most topical energy matters in an informal setting. My name is Richard Sverson. Today, in a carbon market special, I'm joined by Tom Lord of Redshore Advisors and my old pal, Alessandro Vitelli. Alessandro has been covering this market since about 1890. A warm welcome to you both anyway. I think we should start by discussing current market dynamics. We've seen prices come down after a volatile period um, after summer. What are the main drivers here, Tom? It's a mixed bag at the moment. We have a few um, a few bullish um, influences and a lot of bearish influences as well at the same time. So we've seen prices stuck in a fairly tight range. Could you isolate the sort of those both the bearish and the bullish bullish factors? Sure. I think on the on the bullish side, um, we have the MSR, which has been going all all year. Mm. Um, lack of UK auctions, so mm-hmm. the the Brexit uncertainty is is um, is ensuring there's no auction on a on a Wednesday every fortnight. We have the December auction shutdown on the horizon now. Um, so midway through December, the auctions will cease until the new year. Um, and obviously, we're coming into winter, so winter um, is generally supportive. Um, obviously, higher um, higher heating demand from from across Europe. Mm. Um, in terms of the, the bearish influences, we have European gas prices. So mm. uh, I think that's probably the main bearish driver at the moment. We also have the the Brexit uncertainty isn't helping. Mm. Um, and the, coupled with that, you have the, the potential return of UK auctions. So depending mm. on the outcome of the Brexit saga, um, you potentially have those UK auction volumes returning to the market in 2020. So UK auctions um, adding to that supply in 2020, perhaps in a, in a short space of time, makes Q1 look um, particularly um, vulnerable to, to lower prices, perhaps. Alessandro, do you, do you agree with these factors? Is there anything you'd like to add to that? I agree with them all. I think they're all relevant factors in how the market is, is, is playing out at the moment. It's, it's trapped in a fairly narrow, relatively narrow technical band. Mm. There's no great dynamic that's pushing it one way or the other. Mm. And as we near the expiry of the 2019 contract in December, mm. there's going to be less desire to move it away from where it is now because simply because of the option open interest that is congregating around about the current strike price. Mm. So as the further we go, I think the less possibility of a breakout comes. Mm. After expiry, Mm. there may be a change as people start to look into 2020 and Mm. start seeing uh, maybe a more bearish outlook, as Tom indicated, for Q1. But so this narrow range is what, between 24 and 26? 24, 26. I mean, we're currently hovering, I, I, I think it was just above 25 late, lately. The point there being that people see no reason to move it. The lack of any of, of any speculative interest in the market to see it go higher, to see it go lower, mm. suggests that you know hands are off. And you know we get towards the end of the, rain, uh, of the year, traders start you know slowing down their activity. They, they they're closing their books. They don't they don't want to put their current bonuses at risk. So you've got this sort of hands off sentiment now. People sort of go quiet. Would you agree with that? Someone? Do you think the sort of speculators are taking a bit of a break? Or? Yeah, I think so. We have seen prices obviously stuck in this range and very closely correlated with the wider energy complex, which Mm. usually suggests that there's nothing in particular driving carbon alone. It's it's mm. seeking direction from elsewhere, mm. um, and there's bearish outlook on the on the UK gas prices and European gas prices have have um, largely driven the the kind of downside that we've seen over the past few months. I would say, but 
we've seen prices come away from the summer highs and then kind of find this range that it seems happy in it. Mm. It seems comfortable reverting towards 25 at the moment. The year-to-date average is 24.91, I think it okay, is. So, so it's yeah. it's um it's reverting to that. I mean, how do you see you know how do you see the market developing for the rest of the year? I mean, would you concur with with Alessandro that you know after December we could see a different dynamic? I, I mean, after the expiry date of the December contract? Yeah, quite possibly. And the the expiry date also coincides with the the auction shutdown. Mm. So. What we typically see in an auction shutdown is 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 higher prices, mm. um, just because there's no supply coming into the market and there is still hedging demand. Mm. But this August um, certainly went against the grain on that one, and a lot will depend on the UK uh, UK election mm. um, and therefore the influence that we see with the Brexit agreement and the return of UK auctions mm. in 2020. So if the UK auctions start or start again in in early 2020, there's certainly the chance that mm. any gains. In, in late December because of the auction shutdown are countered mm. by happy sellers. We've had someone on this pod arguing that carbon prices could reach 45 by the end of the year. From what you're saying, Tom and Alessandro, I think uh, you, you have a, quite a different opinion. Yeah, it seems very unlikely, I would say. Mm. You can't rule it out in carbon. It's a very volatile market. But gas prices look like they'll keep a lid on the, on the carbon price for, for the foreseeable future, I would say. There's also some supply and demand dynamics that are going to come into play. I mean, let's focus firstly on Brexit. The deadline for an an agreement is the 31st of January. Mm. And history teaches us that we always use that up before Mm. we get to an extension or whatever. Mm. So we get to the end of January. There's, let's say there's a deal. The 2019 UK allocation and auction have to come to market. Mm. Now, Are they going to come to market in a compressed period of time, that is, until the compliance deadline at the end of uh, April, Mm. or are they going to be spread out over the whole year? Mm. What is the logistics of 2019 compliance if we have Mm. a deal? Secondly, UK utility... So that would would mean a flood of these allowances on the market in a very short space of time, which, as Tom hinted earlier, that could drive prices very much downwards. And if, it, if we do only get this deal at the, at the end of January, you then mm. have February, March, and April in which to sell, I guess, 70, between 60 and 70 million EUAs perhaps into the auction market mm. and issue all the free allocation mm. to industry. Mm. They then have to quickly balance their books and give it back to the EU at the end of April mm. and, and give those EUAs back to the, to the EU. That kind of volume coming into the market in that period of time can only be bearish. Mm. Now, you then have, assuming mm. we have this deal, you then have the UK continuing to comply until the end of 2020. So while the 2019 EUAs are coming in, the UK is also starting to sell and issue the 2020 EUAs. So you've got two years of UK supply coming to the market at the same time. Mm. That's got to be bearish. Mm. Now, go even further than that and, and, ask, and, and look abroad, look across the channel, look at what the, the last week's decisions from, from Germany. Mm. 2020, they're going to start tendering for the first coal plant closures, middle of the year. Mm. The plant has to close seven months after it's been awarded the tender, I believe. That's, that's right. The case. Yeah, yeah. From now, the, the details we saw, but it's still only a draft program. Still only a draft program. Mm. And then uh, they've also delayed a decision on cancellation of EUAs until 2022. Mm. So you then have this lack of demand coming along the way sometime at the end of 2020, probably, mm. from German coal plants that have shut, plus the German government continuing to offer those EUAs at auction anyway. Mm. 
So you're, we're building up more oversupply on top of reduced demand from the power sector due to decarbonization and renewable energy, mm. due to the downturn in economic output, which is causing industrial mm. emissions to drop. So it's quite bearish uh, outlook. For me, 2020 is nothing but bear. Looks like red concerned. arrows. Uh, yeah, yeah, it yeah, does. Yeah. Um, uh, you, Tom, I mean, would you share this view of Brexit? I know that amongst all the uncertainty sort of this year and certainly after the summer, when it looked like there was a deal coming or the when the certain acts were passed in parliament prices went up but 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 actually the impact of brexit or a deal is is fairly bearish as as alexandra has just uh, just said yeah i think a lot depends on the timing of the uk auctions mm. um we would expect those allowances to come to market in a fairly short space of time but the uk government will also be conscious of um the impact of those auctions on the market mm. and they'll also be conscious of the auction clearing price um, mm. their auction revenue is directly correlated to that auction clearing price so mm. there's no clear um clear picture yet of how quickly those auction volumes will come to market and i i think the key with the auction volumes is who buys them mm. um, the largest buyers of allowances are the utilities and mm. it's our understanding that uk utilities have mm. carried on to carried on hedging regardless of of this mm. brexit uncertainty mm. so if they've already bought who then buys the allowances that are coming to auction? And mm. that's that's a big question mark, I think. Mm. There will be some compliance demand and UK, UK industrials in general, um, and I'm splitting the industrials from the utilities, UK mm. industrials in general have, um, have taken a step back from hedging. Mm. Obviously, I can't speak for every single one of them, mm. um, but a lot of them have not carried on hedging their 2019 exposure. So they will have catch up. Mm. But it probably won't be of the size of the UK auctions. In mm. fact, I'm certain it won't be. They could well be joined by speculative or long-term investors who are um, happy to come back into the carbon market based on the fact that they now have that all this Brexit downside risk has gone away. Mm. Um, but there's, a, there's a, certainly a lot of question marks around 2020's price development, um, especially in the first quarter, maybe first half of the year, I would say. Sure. I mean, a lot of the UK utilities are also uh, foreign-owned, as it were, you know, or not, you know, their headquarters, are the companies based outside of the UK. So obviously they have a big trade and hedging strategy which is either in Dusseldorf or Paris or Brussels wherever that may be and one of the UK industrials uh, that was you know the famous example Tata which was then obviously it wasn't so hedged uh, it, that's quite a key key example Alessandro do you share share this view that you, the, the UK utilities you know you were sounding an imaginary bell there because I think that's that, that's the key point is, is that UK utilities responsible publicly uh, quoted companies will not leave themselves open to that kind of risk. So they will have hedged this year. And in fact, they have told us publicly in many cases that we are complying, mm. whatever that, however you want to interpret that statement, which tells me they're buying UAs. So when that 2019 UK auction pot comes to the market, who buys it? And mm. Tom raised that very important point. Who's going to buy it? Are the speculators still interested enough mm. to buy that volume will european entities come into the uk market to buy those volumes we don't know where that demand comes from mm. normally you would know it would be uk utilities but they're covered for 2019 and 2020 now so that's a downside that's a big downside there are bigger ones further down the line but that's the big one for the next for next year tom we're talking a little about the uk election i mean how you know what what are the ramifications of that i mean at the moment it looks fairly uncertain it looks like the that the polls are 
putting Boris ahead, Boris Johnson ahead and the Conservatives ahead. But does that then, you know, amplify the chances of, of, a, of a deal, for example? I mean, could you, play, could, you, could you explain some of the ways that you see how the, how the results of the UK election on, and the impact that, that could have on the carbon market? Yeah, I think you're right. If the Conservatives win, it looks like the deal that's on the table is taken, mm. um, provided they have a big enough majority to get that through Parliament. I think the risk is probably a hung Parliament again, or someone without a, a strong enough majority to actually pass a Brexit deal. Mm. And therefore, we we have a general election and end, back, end up back in exactly the same situation we've been in for the last three years, in effect. So yeah, yeah. the polls at the moment suggest that that the Conservatives will will have a, probably a healthy enough majority to get that Brexit deal passed, mm. but obviously there's still a still a good month to go until we until we actually go to the polls, um, mm. and a lot can change in that time. Absolutely, I think moving beyond Brexit now and some other fundamental aspects of the market. I mean, Alessandra, you highlighted the potential of the of an economic slowdown in Europe. Would you agree here, Tom, that that could also have a large effect on the demand for EUAs and, and carbon? Yeah, certainly, and I think. I think fuel switching coupled with that is the big bearish factor at the moment. The falling gas prices across Europe are, are driving fuel switching. There's more fuel switching to come. We've already seen some. And uh, as Alessandro noted earlier, we have this uptake of renewable energy every single year. That capacity grows and therefore power power sector emissions are falling. Um, and that's also being aided by the fuel switch as well now. So mm. there is a significant decrease in power sector emissions expected for 2019 Mm. and probably 2020 as well Mm. 2021 even after that so the msr is there to counter that but the the issue with the msr is the time lag now that will work both ways the msr is is effectively looking at at emissions totals from the previous year so it's it's reacting to what's already happened now that will work the same way when the market tightens and the MSR may still be withdrawing allowances. But for now, we have this situation where the MSR is is almost swimming swimming upstream, I mm. guess. Its effect is being negated by these opposing factors. Do you have a view on gas prices at all going forward? I mean, I think the key factor here is what happens in the Ukraine Gazprom negotiations. If, if they come to a deal by the end of the year, early next year, then that could drive so the forward curve because there's a disconnect between the spot price and the forward curve if the forward curve then comes down further or crashes down then you'll see again this massive this fuel switching will continue yeah sure and i guess with the ukraine deal um, i think it's in the ukraine's interest to make sure there is a deal they rely on the the revenues from that gas pretty heavily and therefore common sense says you get a deal that doesn't Mm. always pan out obviously but the outlook for gas prices is bearish for the next year, if not towards year and a half, two years. And therefore, there's this continued pressure on carbon prices. There is there is a limit to the amount of fuel switching that can take place. There's not an unlimited supply of gas capacity that can come online and push coal out, out the merit order. But that fuel switch is is going to work against the MSR. So although the MSR is tightening things, it is mm. it is going to be a factor that, that helps keep a lid on prices potentially. And Alessandro, what's what your what's your view here? Then the the gas glut, uh, you know, storage is at record high. Uh, LNG ships swimming around trying to find a home because there's no, you know, I mean, what what's what's your your house is playing out for for carbon in your view? Carbon is going to re- continue reacting to gas in the short term, but we are coming up to a period when the gas market in Europe is going to go through a structural change. You've got Nord Stream two, which is now progressing faster, and has every chance of being online by next year. You then have Russia that's considering and planning to close 
pipelines that run the southern route. About two and a half thousand kilometers worth of pipelines that go through the southern route are going to shut. And effectively, from what I read and study, Russian gas export capacity is going to fall because of the focus on Nord Streams 1 and 2 and then the lack of southern pipelines. So we could end up in a situation where there's less Russian gas coming to Europe. Prices structurally have to move up to mm. compensate for that. Uh, and that's going to have an impact on carbon, uh, pushing prices back up. Mm. And it risks in, in some marginal moments of bringing coal back at some parts of the year, maybe in the short terms. Uh, we have to watch out for that. Mm. And it's, it's going to change the dynamic for a lot of places, a lot of parts of southern and central East, uh, Eastern Europe are not going to have as easy access to gas as they did before. And so all this talk and, and then consideration of, you know, the future is gas, the future is gas, it may be true for the northern part of Europe, but it, not necessarily for the southern part. And this comes at a time when more and more countries in Europe are coming out with plans to phase out coal, Greece, Hungary, etc. You, you know, you have to worry about that. On the other side, you could say that Russia has never pumped as much gas into into Europe as has done over the last couple of years, but uh, and Norway the same. Quite so, right. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's an interesting point. So perhaps this this view of of a gas supply glut lasting two three years is 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 overdone or uh, well, overstated. I, I'm not saying two or three years we won't be healthily supplied. I'm just saying watch out for these plans to decommission pipelines in the south. Okay. So listeners, you have been warned. Tom, if I can, uh, you know, we've had, uh, you've mentioned hedging earlier, uh, hedging by the utilities. We've had a, a spate of Q3 uh, reports coming out for, for utilities across Europe. How do you see utility hedging strategies? Uh, and, and are there big differences between them? There's always differences between hedging strategies. It's very much a hedging is a, is a company specific thing. So obviously plants around Europe have different efficiencies. They have different variable costs. And therefore, it's very difficult to interpret exactly what the utilities are doing at any one time. I think the higher carbon prices are are going to be impacting those the, the dirtiest and the most inefficient inefficient plants across Europe, and and they're probably the ones feeling the pinch with the price rises that we've seen. Now, mm. um, it's been well documented that RWE have taken a, a financial hedge against that. You know, some of them have been proactive in managing that risk exactly what they've all done is impossible to know in all honesty of course um, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we we can make assumptions based on their reports but um even those reports don't necessarily tell you the full picture exactly and the full picture will come out when the full year report because often these contracts when they go to expiry in, in december and in the fourth quarter then comes much more clear in in uh, in february exactly yeah, february march but how about the industrials you mentioned uk industrials tom how about you know uh industrials across europe there's a general shift from reactive to proactive i would say it's gradual for sure what we saw with carbon prices around five euros a ton is that it was it was very much something people thought about at the end of the year unless you had a very big exposure that mm. warranted kind of real risk management of it mm. a lot of people were happy to leave that till the end of the year so they leave that carbon purchasing till the end of the year safe in the knowledge that price was going to be between somewhere between four and six euros Obviously, that that has has seen a huge shift over the last couple of years, um, and that is driving people to think about their carbon exposure a bit more. Mm. Um, mm. It, it's uh, again, there's no kind of um, one shoe fits all, but there is certainly a push to actually take a more proactive approach. And people are also realising that phase four allocations are falling now. So a lot of a lot of industries are still protected by the carbon leakage list and fairly generous free allocations, but 
nonetheless over time mm. people see that the, the the higher prices and the lower mm. free allocation are really combining to to drive up compliance costs Sure. Alessandro, what's your view here? And one of the approaches that, uh, say, small and medium-sized industrials take is to try and beat the average price of the year. Hmm. And given that we are so close, current hmm. prices to the average price for the year, this is actually a time for them to look carefully at their balances and say, ooh, maybe we can buy a few if the price dips below 24 91 or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Certainly, they'll be, they'll be looking to beat those targets, that average price for the year. That's hmm. sort of halfway stage between full risk management on a day-to-day basis and mm. no risk management, which is what we used to see when the prices were two, three, four. Mm. This is a halfway stop. And I think more industrials are moving to that kind of semi-proactive. Uh, well, I mean, you can understand why the risk is that much greater, of mm-hmm. course, and the exposure to those prices is huge. But Tom, I mean, do you think that some companies are, are not aware of the, the total cost of carbon? I mean, you have the carbon price, but you also have the knock-on effect, the indirect cost. What's your view here? Yes, yeah, certainly. And I, I think total carbon costs will, will come more and more into focus. A lot of companies until now have looked at their direct carbon costs um, and as we said they were relatively low they were protected by free allocation and prices mm. were quite low mm. that is changing people are generally aware of that and and kind of can do the sums to understand um, uh, some of their exposure at least indirect carbon costs are, are growing with the carbon price so the carbon price is becoming a, a bigger and bigger factor in the power price. And what a lot of companies don't understand is, is those indirect carbon costs that they face. And there's there's a, probably a lack of understanding and analysis on, on, on how big an influence carbon is in that power price. And now all these guys in the EUETS are, are electro-intensive mm. and therefore it has a huge impact on their overall costs. So whilst they may be receiving a generous free allocation for their direct carbon cost, Mm. many are receiving either no compensation or limited compensation for their indirect carbon costs. Mm. So it is a, it is certainly a changing picture. And I think if you, if you throw in into that mix, the, the general movement towards carbon neutrality, Mm. um, there is a, there is a growing carbon cost overall. So we Mm. have, um, you have the cost of reducing emissions, the cost Mm. of potentially voluntarily offsetting the rest of the the emissions Mm. that you can't reduce. And then there's also things like the opportunity cost of, of not being green, Mm. Um, you know, consumer trends are changing, investor trends are changing, and therefore companies are really having to, to understand that total carbon cost now. So, I mean, could you highlight any companies or sectors in particular that sort of are not, maybe not so totally aware of, of their complete I, I exposure? Couldn't say, I couldn't say a sector in specific. Um, mm. I, I think some companies are certainly more proactive than others. You know, we already see companies that have the carbon neutrality all over their websites, all over their brand, and you're very much aware of who they are. Um, mm. The the risk, I think, for, for those not in, not understanding or embracing this change is that they will very quickly be left behind. Mm. Um, and that could have a huge knock-on effect for, for businesses all across Europe, not just those in the EUETS, businesses across the whole world, in fact. Absolutely. Yeah, there, are, there are supply chain companies who don't necessarily have an interface with the public, with the mm. consumers, the ones who serve the retailers, the ones who serve the manufacturers, mm. who are exposed to a cost of carbon and yet who don't have a compelling corporate social responsibility story to tell, mm. who don't face the public and therefore don't really get impacted by public concerns. Those guys mm. who are stuck in the middle of the chain mm. have no real incentive 
to look at their carbon costs, except in terms of what it, you know their power bills, et cetera, et cetera. And they maybe get some compensation for that. But these are the people who probably are the slowest to pick up mm. on these trends, the public concerns, uh, and the idea, the benefits of showing yourself to be a properly carbon neutral company. Yeah. Gentlemen, I mean, a fascinating discussion, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Tom, thank you very much for, for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on board, and I, I hope we can have you back on the pod to discuss the, the key carbon issues. Certainly, and thank you for having me. And Alessandro, thank you once again. And uh, I, you're off to the COP very soon, aren't you, in, in, in Madrid? Oh. Uh, I think we're not as far as Chile this time, but uh, you'll save on, the, uh, on, the, on your carbon emissions. That's correct. I'll, I'll, I'll be walking the hallways in Madrid. Perfect. Well, thank you once again, Alessandro. Thank you. That's about all from the Montel Weekly podcast this week. Remember to keep up to date with all our stories on Montel News and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Goodbye. <laughs>